Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Stephen Gendel, who's a senior portfolio manager and head of distressed credit for the CIFC platform. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. I thought we'd get a bit of a kickoff today in terms of distressed credit and particularly private credit is, but I wanted to touch on what actually this platform is. Like, well, CIFC is a, a global asset manager focused exclusively on credit across performing loans, CLOs, structured credit, long, short, high yield, and then the op- opportunistic credit space, which is where our strategy lies. So you've got a pretty good understanding of what's going on in the markets today. And, and I'm assuming US is the key focus of, of your strategy, or you go across both US and, and Europe? The firm is US and Europe. The distress strategy is almost exclusively US focused. So in terms of the distressed context, it's been a very hard year. COVID has, has played havoc on the US. How do you see the economy there in terms of a glass half full or glass half empty? Distressed investors are always in the glass uh, half empty camp. Uh, you know, we're, we're generally bearish by nature. And I think nobody would have predicted, regardless of whether you're bullish or bearish now, that the global economy and the U.S. economy would come through a pandemic with equities hitting all-time highs today and, and have experienced the rally back to pre-COVID levels in, in credit. You had already over-leveraged balance sheets going into COVID with leverage at, at levels that, that exceeded the global financial crisis before we faced the impact of COVID. And so I think we're clearly in a speculative bubble driven by low interest rates and stimulus. But that being said, Bubbles can last for a very long time. So I'm not sure that it matters necessarily from this moment in time investing, other than to say that it's a game of musical chairs and I don't think you want to be caught when the music stops. And so we're not really macro focused. We we look individual credits on an absolute basis. We think about, uh, you know, we try to buy assets at a discount to intrinsic value. We try to buy businesses at very low multiples of sustainable cash flow that are experiencing some form of a problem at this moment in time that we believe is fixable. And so we're, we're, not, we're not macroeconomists and we're not really macro focused, although the macro environment will factor into our investment process. So, for example, when, when you, we were looking at names in you know, March, April and May, we, we were looking at names that were impacted, the most impacted by COVID, but where could we predict cash flow? And so that, that excluded a lot of what you know, most people would think that we as distressed investors were doing. So restaurants, hotels, brick and mortar retail, airlines. And we didn't really look at any of that stuff because we didn't feel like we understood how to predict complete business shutdowns and what does that mean from a liquidity standpoint. Because um, I don't think anybody's ever seen that before. And so, you know, now today with the benefit of, of seeing how these businesses operated since March, you can, you know, maybe you could have a different view. Um, but we really didn't play in the COVID-related space because 
we're not trying to gamble on the recovery. We're trying to make investments where we have some certainty with respect to asset value or future cash flow. Now, if you, you do ask my opinion on, on the sort of the macro, I'm not convinced the vaccine is going to be the panacea for risky credit that everybody thinks it is. I think you, you still are going to have businesses that are going to be challenged for years to come. You have changing fundamentals on, in consumer behavior that remain to be seen how this is going to play out. You had rescue loans done in the direct COVID spaces right after the virus hit to give these companies you know, a lifeline to live to another day. And you're going to, I believe, find out that those lifelines aren't going to work. And so I suspect that as companies begin to report Q1 and Q2 numbers next year, a lot of the uh, bullish sentiment will abate in a, lot of the, in, a, in a lot of the more troubled sectors. It's interesting that you mentioned that there was already troubles before COVID. And it's quite funny, actually, because even at the end of, of last year, there was a lot of talk about being late in this cycle. And we've got a lot of problems. And then it sort of feels like we've, we've moved along the narrative out in the broader market has changed and, and that they think, well, we're, we're going to move through this. And is, it, is that just a narrative because there has been all these central bank stimulus that's been coming in, the Treasury's been offering different loans and so forth? So look, we, we will move through it, right? And it doesn't mean that these businesses will, will cease to exist, right? Airlines are going to fly, people will go back to hotels, right? But, and you probably have huge pent up demand uh, for consumers who want to get out of their house. And so that has, that's the positive side of the equation. You know, exactly when it's going to happen, you know, I'm not smart enough to predict. But the flip side is businesses have learned to live without their employees traveling for marketing purposes and going to conferences and sitting face-to-face -face with their customers as opposed to doing, you know, what you and I are doing and talking uh, via Zoom. And so... I suspect you're going to find a lot of businesses that say, hey, we can dramatically slash expenses because we weren't getting the bang for the buck that we had before. And then you, you look at the ripple effect of, of if people stop traveling as much for business, that's less hotels, that's less conventions, that's less event planning companies that do that rent the spaces and provide the audiovisual. And so there, there's just long-term risk to, to many business models that we could talk about that. Uh, it remained to be seen. And so you can, you can invest in that. And, and there are times to do it when you can do it at such a cheap valuation where you model that only a quarter of the business comes back and, and, and maybe, and, and the business still works and the capital structure still works. But in a lot of these already over leveraged capital structures, that's, that's not going to be the case. So, uh, you know, that's why I say it, it's, it's better to look at things from a micro perspective and try to understand what's going to happen in a particular business in a particular industry, rather than, than say the, the global economy or the US economy is going to do X, Y, and Z. So it's going back to old school cherry picking. I think so. And for ours, the way that we've always managed a distressed business, both at CIFC and, and my two prior firms, that's the way we always looked at things anyway. It's interesting when you say that, because if you look to the broader market there, you, you've touched on the balance sheets being overlevered, despite global equities doing very well. There's a number of companies that are even struggling to meet their interest payments, their zombie companies. How do you think about that trade-off when you're looking at, at the broader market and individual businesses? 
companies that you, that have strong cash flows, are there still many companies out there that have strong cash flows and are yet distressed? Is that a bit of a misnomer there? Yes, you can be, you, well, I don't know if you're strong today, mm-hmm. right? But there are, there are certainly businesses that are overlevered. But here, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of a recent opportunity in distress that I think plays into all of these themes. So obviously movie theater chains have, wanted to, have been one of the biggest victims of, of the COVID environment. And so immediately after the virus hit, a lot of them raised rescue capital that was supposed to bridge them through this period. Well, it turned out that the impact of the virus lasted longer than most people thought originally. And then you had studios start streaming direct, you know, new content direct to home. And Warner Brothers announced, I think, two weeks ago that they were going to start sending major feature uh, content uh, to, to HBO Max. Disney followed suit last week. And so you know, look, eventually people will go back to theaters. I think all the the statistics were there pre-COVID that people like to get out of their house. They don't view streaming in the home as equivalent to a night out at at the theater. But how long it's going to take to get bodies back in the seats uh, remains to be seen. And so Cineworld, one of the largest global theater chains, just did a rescue loan a couple of weeks ago to buy themselves time to what they hope is next summer for theaters to reopen. And the cost of capital on that debt, depending on how you look at the equity component of it, is something like 25 to 30% return to the new money investors. And this, this paper came in at the top of the capital structure. And that's a pretty attractive loan because you don't need Cineworld to return to 2019 levels. You just need there to be a viable business in theaters for that loan to be safe. And so, you know, that's sort of an example of, of what's out there in, in distress where you don't necessarily have to be right about the timing, uh, but that's a healthy business that is just dramatically overlevered for today's environment. But you can create this particular part of the capital structure at a fraction of, of its uh, prior performance. You know, and, the, and there's other ways to sort of play these themes. So, you know, within the theater, within the theater space, um, it's not just movie theater. Right. And so what we usually focus on are are smaller mid cap names. Right. We're looking for the off the run names that the larger funds aren't looking for. And so in that same space, you have theater advertisers, right? National Cinemedia and Screen Vision, two companies that have 80 percent market share in the advertisements to customers in theaters when you're, you know, for the 15 or 20 minutes that you're waiting before uh, a movie starts. And this is highly impactful, highly profitable targeted advertising because the, the, the customers have a, a captive audience for that period of time. They really can't do anything else. And, and so with you have the same phenomenon as movie theaters, right? You need bodies in seats for this model to work. The difference is these are not brick and mortar operators that have rent that they have to pay. So you take Cineworld's got 65 million of monthly cash burn until they get to the other side of the virus and Screen Vision burns three to three and a half million because it's just a technology platform that's distributing content to the theaters. And they have ample liquidity to survive well into 2022. And so, you know, that's a term loan that currently trades around 80. You know, you're not taking a lot of risk and, you, and the company has the balance sheet to wait to get to the other side. So there are still, this is, and, and these, are not, these are not examples from April, right? These are, these are things that you could do today in the market. So that I think show there's still a, you know, a lot of opportunity in the distress space for companies that 
just ha- still being impacted by the COVID situation. Yeah. So is it fair to say that then you're looking more at these smaller to mid cap organizations rather than the large cap who maybe it's, it's easier for them to re- find refinancing? How, how do you transition no, th- or, that, or choose? Yeah, that has been the case, right? You know, everything that most people read about the capital markets and the ease of financing and everything that's happened in the past six months is largely related to the biggest capital structure. What we do is focus on small cap, mid cap credit primarily. And those companies haven't had the same experience that the larger cap companies have. You know, look, I always think examples make make commentary easier. So just as another example, we recently invested in a, a specialty apparel manufacturer uh, that that makes branded sports uh, apparel. So one of the, you know, again, another sort of impact of COVID in that people aren't going to stadiums anymore and, you know, all the major sports leagues are playing with no fans. And, and so this, this paper, this is, this business is basically a monopoly in its particular niche. And so eventually when parents are buying branded clothing for their children, again, this company will, will perform well. Uh, they manage working capital. I'm not going to give the name because it's something that we're currently currently asking. The reason I'm mentioning it is we were bidding 35 for this loan starting in April. I mean, it, it had all the characteristics of the type of trade we want, buying a business at a very low multiple of what we think is sustainable cash flow, monopoly market position. We, we were bidding 35. The market was 35.53 until a month ago when we got the paper at 35. We didn't move our price up. And the story, because here we are now sort of moving through the virus closer to, you know, this company having increased revenue and profitability levels, the seller had to capitulate to our level. We didn't have to raise our bid because this universe, this is $147 million terminal. There's just not a lot of people looking for this type of paper. So we didn't, we didn't have much competition in sourcing it. We just needed a seller to desperately want to get out. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think for a lot of investors, they probably think that back in March, April, that was when the peak was to get into distressed. But what you seem to be describing is that there's a lot of distressed opportunities still today that still at similar and maybe even better prices than they were back in April. Is that fair? Yeah. So I, I think back in April, it wasn't distressed. It was a, it was a dislocated market. And the opportunity, which we participated in, and, and you know, I'm sure everybody in hindsight would have would have rather been more heavily invested uh, than they were, was you had par credit trade down to the 80 level because everyone was afraid the world was ending, and you had CLOs sell, selling and CLOs, you know, worrying about their triple C baskets and things like that. And so you you what you had was the the performing loan space trade down. And then rebound as the stimulus came in uh, and CLOs look to high grade their portfolios and sell out of COVID names and, and buy the other names they liked better that had traded down. And you, that, was not, that to me is not a distress market, right? It's certainly a market where you, you were able for a brief period of time to make good returns, um, but that was not distress credit in the classic sense that most people think about it, right? Those weren't the businesses that were in trouble. Then what you saw from there was that the most over-levered, most troubled businesses sort of ex-COVID that were sort of hanging on by a thread that everyone thought was going to go bankrupt before and, and somehow were able to stay out of court, those were the ones that toppled over. 
and those were not names that you know most people were looking to invest in uh, at that point in the cycle anyway. So I I believe that we, that you didn't miss the opportunity for distressed investing in March and April. You missed a dislocation in the performing credit space, and the distressed opportunity set continued. It's interesting because we saw an article in Pensions and Investments just recently about this distressed avalanche that's coming. They assume that there's going to be this whole nother wave of distressed investment opportunity coming, uh, which lines up with your your thinking that some of this distress will take a little bit longer to play out. Obviously, COVID is another factor there in terms of how many restrictions are on the public you know, for the next six, 12 months. How do you think about this next wave of, of distress more broadly? Look, I think it goes back to what I was saying before that, you know, we clearly are in a speculative bubble across capital markets in general. And you just have to look at balance sheets relative to cash flow to know that, you know, we've never had this level of leverage before. Now, it doesn't mean that the wholesale market is going to blow up. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the entire performing credit space is in trouble, because certainly there are, you know, there are businesses today that are benefiting from what's going on in the in the, in the world because their particular set of products and services is, is more valuable than before. But the fact that the capital markets have rallied doesn't mean the economy is doing well, right? And so I think people often confuse the stock market going up with meaning that everything's fine in the economy. And it means, you know, there are parts of the economy that are fine. Uh, there are parts that are not. Uh, but I just look at balance sheets and I say, that to me means Eventually, you have reversion to the mean. People have to pay their debts. There will come a time when you can't continue rolling maturities at increasingly higher costs and increasingly higher leverage. When that happens, who knows? I would have told you a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Um, so, which is why I think, you know, that's why I say we focus on the micro and we just look at, we look for off the run niche compelling opportunities that are not not the best of what's available today, but that satisfy our risk reward perspective in any market environment. And then it enables us to think about the macro environment just as an issue relative to the company's liquidity, not the driver of our investment. The other piece that obviously you need to think about when you're looking at these companies is default rates, right? And then recovery rates. How do you know, the default rates of these types of businesses and recoveries line up with what you're seeing today? It's interesting because I think people equate default rates with distressed opportunities. And I don't believe that that's the case. I think what it means is that when default rates are high, there are more bankruptcies. And so if, if someone's sole goal was to invest in bankruptcies, then yes, the universe of bankruptcies is larger when default rates are high. Our strategy is, is a little bit different than most. So you know, a lot of distressed investors are fulcrum security investors, right? Doing distress for control, where they want to buy debt that's going to get converted into back-end equity in a reorganization. You know, we are attempting to avoid that entirely. Uh, if, if we are going to get the equity, we want to get it very cheap or free. Uh, but we're trying to buy performing credit that's going to remain performing credit. And by remain, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be a bankruptcy. But we are not looking for bankruptcies, right? We're actually looking to avoid it. We want to find the the loans that are trading at a big discount that are either going to rebound or are going to get restructured into new paper that's going to trade higher. Or if we are going to invest in a bankrupt situation, that we're going to get at least our investment back in new debt and the equity cheap or free. So bankruptcy in and of itself is not really a driver of our opportunity set. We need there to be some form of trouble. 
And trouble could be that it could be, you know, March and April, the whole broad economy. But for the most part, it doesn't have to be, you know, and it, it, it can just be an individual sector that's having a problem. Like, for example, you know, the, the vaccine could, everybody could get vaccinated tomorrow. And it, it, it doesn't mean that a lot of restaurants are not going to close, right? So there's going to be pain in the restaurant space for a very long time. There's going to be pain in the brick and mortar retail space. We had it pre-COVID. You're going to see it continue with, you know, and the you know, onslaught of Amazon and continued other uh, people making inroads into the online space. And so, you know, these things don't need the entire market to be in disarray. And then you have companies that have their own individual problems, right? They might have it could be you know, a pharmaceutical company that has opioid exposure. And so that's, that could bring their capital structure down or a healthcare business that's dealing with lower Medicare reimbursement rate. And that creates problems in that whole space. So you know, there's obviously unlimited examples of the fact that you don't need default, spiking defaults for there to be a robust opportunity set in what I call the, what everyone calls the stress, but I really just think of it as opportunistic credit in trouble business. Do you get into any negotiations with special type of financing with any of these businesses? So we do participate in, in rescue loans, exit financings, debtor in possession financings, right? So we, we're primary issuance to some of the, business, the companies that we're already invested in. But for the most part, we're, we start with looking at the secondary market opportunities and work from there. And so when investors looking at this particular type of opportunity set, what's the lead time and deployment time that they would come to expect? A lot of people think they can time the distress market, right? They can wait for defaults to spike. They can wait for credit to sell off. I think if you if you were on the sidelines, not invested in credit, you, you, you found out in March and April that that's a bad strategy because if you didn't have the capital ready to go, it was very hard to deploy it find a manager you like and, and get up to speed that fast. You know, we've set our fund up as a drawdown structure so that our interests are aligned with our investors. They only pay fees when we draw the capital and we draw the capital as we see opportunities. So for example, we were, we were 30% drawn going into COVID. We got up to around 50% drawn as, as we took capital down and, and have been recycling that that since, but the you have to be there when the opportunity comes. You know, you take the let's say there was some adverse ruling in the, in Medicare reimbursement rates. That's going to bring the the whole related sector down. And if you're not there with the money or invested in a fund that has the ability to call you, uh, where the manager has discretion to act at what they believe is the appropriate time, then I think in anything other than a, a very prolonged downturn, be it the overall market or individual sector, it's going to be hard to react that fast. And what you will definitely miss are individual company problems, right? You will not be able to time effectively uh, single name investment. And to me, especially when you're doing small caps, this is maybe less true in the large cap space, it's the one-off single names that are the greatest opportunities. And, and that's something that if you were taking a more macro bet and timing it, you'd, you'd never be able to. What's the common tenor of, of these types of loans that you're making? So everything we do is catalyst driven and we look for catalysts within 18 months to two years. So for us, it's less about the maturity of the underlying security. We're focused on the catalyst and we are, and if we're correct on the catalyst, we, we can avoid duration risk in the overall market. 
more specifically in the US, you know, when you're working with US pension funds, what are the sort of questions that you're hearing today? Obviously, moving into the end of 2020 and, and you know, a new year kicks off, also potentially a new administration that looks likely. What are the, what are the questions that you're hearing from investors? Yeah, so the number one question is the market's had a crazy rally. Obviously, there's nothing to do in distress. And, and so we respond in a few ways. One, look at our performance over the last couple of months. And, and I think that that answers the question, uh, one perspective, but then they say, okay, well, going forward from here. And the truth is, like I said, when you're micro-focused, the, the, the overall market is, is less of the issue. You know, we, we, deploy, we drew capital very recently and have been deploying it in, in what we think are some of the best risk-reward investments that we've made um, all year. Now, if you look at our last three investments, one was a 147 million term loan that I mentioned earlier. One was a 290 million uh, term loan, and and another was a 195 million note, unsecured note. And so, you know, these are just deal sizes and tranche sizes that most people are not focused on. And so, the nice thing is, you know that you have a lot of time to do your work in these types of situations. And our process is very research intensive. We do a lot of primary research with customers, suppliers, ex-employees, obviously the current management team, but any, anything where we can get something that gives us an information edge, we'll bring in outside consultants. If it's a specialized industry that we don't have uh, experience in, in engineers, if it's, you know, in a situation of, uh, of hard assets. And so, to do that, you need time. And in, in, a, in, a, in a raging bull market, in, in what's been going on in the broader leverage finance space and the larger deals, there's no time to do this work uh, because there's too many eyeballs on it. And some of these smaller names, that's a nice, you know, nice advantage that we have is just that we have the time to do the research. And if we don't have the time, we're not gonna, we're not gonna invest. So it's very important to our strategy. Are these set rates or their plus, you know, a CPI plus rate or LIBOR plus rate? How are they determined? In the case of the, the notes, they're, they're fixed rate or they're in the bond market because um, we buy bonds and loans. In the case of the loans, they're all, they're all LIBOR based, but, you know, we're not, I'm not talking about buying things at par. We're talking about buying things at, at large discounts. So they're, they're healthy uh, yields. And as you move into the, the new year, what are the, the risks that you see to the space? You know, what, what's something that you're, you're worried about? Is it more of a deflationary style environment that would be most at risk for you? No, because, because whatever, whatever is going to happen in the economic environment is, is going to be positive for some people and negative for others, right? And, and maybe you'd say, you, you know, it's interesting, you know, you would say, well, previously, sort of pre-COVID, you'd say, well, a, a, a booming macro economy is good for everybody. But that's actually not true anymore, given the changing consumer behavior that we, are, that we have already witnessed and then trying to predict how that is going to play out over the next couple of years. And so, so I actually think you're good, you, you, you have a scenario where you could see, I, I don't think this is going to happen, right? I don't, I don't think it's off to the races next year just because of the vaccines. But, but let's say I'm wrong. There's still going to be a lot of sectors in distress, even if that happens. And that's probably different than any other period in time where, where you had a growing economy. Final question, in terms of opportunity set, 
is there a particular sector that you think is still a great opportunity that people haven't discovered yet? I don't know about a sector, but uh, you know, if we're going to talk about the opportunities that I see. For us, we're sort of this small business inside of a very large platform, and and that creates a, a unique opportunity set for us versus if you were a dedicated distress manager. And that's where we're in this environment. That's what we're looking to exploit. So what I mean there is. Our firm is invested in 500 plus loans at any given time. And because of our size, we're always one of the largest holders in whatever we're, we're involved in. So we're usually, if a name gets in trouble, we're going to be on the steering committee of creditors. And so from a distress standpoint, we have a unique ability to be involved in on the creditors committee and often on the steering committee at a time when our fund is not even involved. And so we can do our work from that vantage point as opposed to what what I've done my whole career is when you're a dedicated distressed operator, you're on the outside looking in, trying to get access to information, trying to understand what the larger creditors are doing. And that takes a lot of time and it's hard to do. We have an advantage that we're already on the inside in many of these cases. And if we're not, we have a large structured credit business that's invested in all the other CLO managers. And so if our analysts aren't involved in a particular name, we have access to teams of analysts across the street through our structured credit group that can help give us that color. You know, in addition, we've got a outside of our, our distress team, we've got a team of 25 analysts that cover every name in the loan space. Every name that's ever been looked at in the firm has some form of a write-up, even if the firm has passed on it. It's all in a searchable database that is a tremendous head start whenever a name gets in trouble. Because if you can imagine, if you're if you're a distress firm and a new name gets in trouble, you have to first start doing some amount of work to get up to speed to see if it's interesting. That part of the work is already done. And we have access to all of the analysts on our team to walk us through it. So, And then there's the, the rescue loans, exit loans, debtor financing possessions that, that are always offered to the existing creditor group, usually first. And we're sitting inside a $29 billion platform that's seeing these opportunities and we can, we can source them and participate in them from that vantage point. And that creates a lot of the new flow that we're going to be investing in. And I think that that universe of paper is only going to increase over the coming years. And so I think we're very uniquely positioned to take advantage of the opportunities uh, that are coming in the market. Well, it's great to see that there is a, a rational piece to the markets being the distressed space, that there is true fundamental analysis going on as opposed to what seems to be a very odd, irrational type of equities market that we've seen in the last nine months. So thank you very much for your time today, Stephen. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.